Welcome to Campus House. My name's Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you could join us this morning for worship. And we are um, going to finish the book of Job today. I, I sometimes consider myself a little bit of a movie buff. I really enjoy watching movies. I love studying them, thinking about them. I like reading reviews about movies and seeing what other people think. And how a movie ends uh, tells you a lot about the movie or what the director was trying to do. Of course, there's movies like Inception, and you know, the, the top is spinning, and then it wobbles, and then the movie ends, and you wonder, well, which world is he in? Is he in the dream world? Is he in the real world? Where is he? You wonder what world he's in. It's a great movie ending, uh, be, unlike many other movie endings, because it doesn't necessarily resolve everything immediately or quickly, but it still makes you long for the resolution. You want to know what world is he in? What, what really is going to happen? Of course, there's other movies, and the book of Job ends much more like the Lord of the Rings. And depending which uh, version of that you watch, you know, there's actually like 12 endings to the Lord of the Rings if you watch the extended version. Because what you see is every single character that was a part of that had a resolution. You get to see how it ends for everybody. And that's actually what it's like in the book of Job. I think something that we long for, to know the resolution because we've been on this journey with Job, seeing him through uh, his good life. He was a great man with awesome character. He had a wonderful family. He was wealthy. He was a businessman, but he lost everything. In terrible tragedies, he lost all that he had, including his 10 children. And then we saw Job through multiple chapters. This is chapter 42. So we've seen a lot of chapters of Job suffering, of Job struggling, of Job wrestling, of Job wondering, what am I to become? What am I to make of this life? Is God really for me? Is he, his friends were showing him that maybe God is against him. Look at his circumstances. Maybe God wasn't for him. And so we've come to the end of Job and to see the resolution and what it's all about. We've been trying to learn from Job what it's like to become men and women who can uh, work our way through, learn from Job what it looks like to, to sustain our faith through all of our life, the entirety of our lifetime, knowing that like Job, we too may face grief, pain, injustices, tragedies, or suffering. We recognize that the world has those things, and some of us have already faced much. Some of us might face more. Some of us simply have friends that we're seeking to learn and family how to walk with them through difficulties. And we've come to see that at the end, turns out God has a plan for what to do with the terrible tragedies even of life. So let's read Job chapter 42. After Job has had a significant conversation, he got what he wished for. God showed up and spoke personally to him. And when God showed up, he showed up in great power. And this is right after this conversation with God that changed Job. And here's how he changes. Chapter 42 of Job says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And he quotes what God said earlier. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he quotes God again. Here and I will speak. I will question you. You make it known to me. And Job said, well, I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of my ears, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent 
in dust and ashes. And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, Job's friend from earlier, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters. Turns out Job had a large extended family who never came to him during his suffering. And all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that had been brought, the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his sons' sons for four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. You know, after all the drama, all the poetry, all the conversations between his friends, we come to a very fairly simple prose ending to Job. And it simply sums up what happens. Job is restored to even greater prosperity than he had before. In one sense, we might say, well, Job rode off into the sunset. It's a happy ending. It's a good ending. It gives resolution to what we might want to know has happened to Job's life. But we may also say, well, that's nice. Then we may treat it. We may be tempted to treat it like we would a movie where we go, we want to kind of escape our own world for a bit and see another world and see the way that people interact, how they faced conflict and how there was a resolution. But we go home knowing, well, that's not really my life most of the time. That's not necessarily my story. That was fun to see. But is that what reality is really like? And I want to I argue today that the end of Job and really all of Job, is setting us up for what to expect in the Christian life. Job is an extreme story. We're talking about someone who was the richest person in the world who literally loses everything except his own life. He's even deathly ill. And then here we see that he's restored. This is actually a pattern for us to look at. And I I know this, I say this because of the way we want to interpret the Bible, which is we let other parts of the Bible help us understand the Bible. So James, all the way in the New Testament, towards the very end, actually references Job. And here's what he says uh, in in James 5, verse 11. He says, "'As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance.'" And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James is talking about the book of Job, the story of Job, and he says there's two things that we really want to take from this. Job's perseverance and God's purpose, which is compassion. 
Job's perseverance and God's compassion. And really, the perseverance of Job is about our perseverance in walking with God through any and every situation. So this is what James, or James is seeking to show us, and that's what we're going to take as our outline today, the perseverance of Job and the compassion of God. So let's jump in and see what the story of Job has been showing us about this perseverance that we need for the normal Christian life. You know, perseverance is actually a major theme throughout all of the Bible. It's a trait, it's a quality that men and women have who face adversity without losing hope. Not giving up in the pain. Not giving in to the despair. That's perseverance. It's, it's this capacity to hold out and to bear up in the face of difficulty. And usually it includes some mixtures of patience, of endurance, of steadfastness, of fortitude or courage. Perseverance requires courage because you're facing something that is difficult. And you don't need courage if you're not afraid, if you're not struggling. But courage is for those who struggle and yet come into that struggle without being destroyed or at least being willing to face it. And courage requires faith. And this is important because perseverance or this kind of courage we're talking about is not grin and bear it. It's not stoicism. I can take it. I'll just work really hard at it. That's not the kind of perseverance the Bible talks about. It's the perseverance that comes only by faith. Why? Because true perseverance and true courage only can work if you have faith. What does perseverance and courage do? It sees beyond the circumstance that you're in. You don't persevere if you think, this is it. This is the end. It's all over. I I should just give up and stop trying. That's not perseverance. But it's also because we've lost faith that there might actually be another reality behind and underneath this one that maybe is different, even if we haven't seen it yet. Because isn't that what faith and hope are about? Holding on to things that we have yet to see, but trusting that they are just as real as the things that we do see? The only way we have courage or perseverance is if we also have faith. And this is seen all throughout the Bible. Just a couple examples from what even Jesus himself says to people, to his disciples, his followers, who are about to go through a really difficult time. He says in Luke 21, "'It's by your endurance that you will gain your lives.'" Or in Matthew chapter 10, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says it this way, through Christ we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We've gained gained access to a new and better story, the story rooted in faith that goes beyond what we see. But then he says, not only then do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in our sufferings. Let's be clear. He doesn't say rejoice because of suffering. He says you rejoice even in suffering. We're not rejoicing that there is suffering. We're rejoicing in the suffering because we have something beyond the suffering. And notice this. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know even suffering can produce endurance. Endurance produces, and that's perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope will never put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10 says much the same, that we are those who don't shrink back and are destroyed, but we hold fast to our faith and we preserve our souls. This is what God wants to give us. And so Job shows us perseverance in two particular ways. Perseverance in warfare and perseverance in waiting. 
Do you remember that one of the one of the great things about the book of Job is how honest it is. It's refreshingly honest about pain, about suffering, about how we relate with God when we, we're, we're unsure. It's real about friendships and about difficulties in marriage. It's real about God and about sorrow and about the spiritual realm. And what is it that we see? All of those things come up because Job is facing a battle. He is a believer who is facing a battle. All that stuff comes up because he has lost everything. He is facing a terrible tragedy. And Job has been helping us over the last several weeks. We've been looking and seeing that what Job is showing us is the battle we face. And he's, trying, he's been helping us understand the pain that pain and problems and difficulties in your life are always also at the same time temptations. They are temptations to give up on God. They are temptations to give up on faith. They are temptations to say, what I see doesn't match what I hope for, therefore life isn't what I thought it was, God must have lied, or maybe God doesn't even like me because he's not giving me what I hope for and what I want. All along, we've been seeing that this is a battle because at the very beginning of the story, Satan shows up. And it's not God who's attacking Job. It's not Job who's brought this upon himself. It's this adversary named Satan, this spiritual power who comes to destroy his life. And what he says to God is this. This is what Satan says to God in chapter 1 and 2. He's, He's saying, look, God, don't you see? All the people who follow you only worship you because you gave them nice things. But if you take everything away, if you take away their health, if you take away the things they love and value, they won't care for you anymore. They won't worship you simply because you're God. They only worship you because you have given them the nice life that they want. And so Satan comes and attacks God, and then he comes and attacks Job. And God allows it because God isn't a tyrant. God isn't someone who has, to, who, who has to control even evil in one sense. He doesn't say, I will, I will control evil. But at the same time, we saw that Satan is on a leash. He can only do what God allows. So while God allows it, he doesn't stop it. He also really does have overall control of Satan. And so Satan goes and he afflicts Job. And God's not even afraid of that. It's a terrible thing, but God's not afraid of it. Because God says, look, even your evil, I will turn for good. This has been the story we've been trying to look at. And one of the things we have to come to see is that it's not just that Job is on a battlefield. He's not literally hand-to-hand combat with Satan. Job himself is the battlefield. And this is true for all people because God, in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, one of the first things we learn is that God created us to be in his image, which means we are his concrete resemblances on earth. God is a spirit, and yet we are supposed to be concrete reflections of aspects of who he is. And Satan hates God, so he attacks anything that looks like God. He attacks you and I. In the Western world, Satan has done a great job of lying to us and getting us to believe that he doesn't exist or there's no spiritual warfare or there's nothing out there that could possibly afflict us like that. That's one of his tactics, I believe, that he wants us to think that this isn't true. But then isn't it true that so often when we come to face sufferings or trials or difficulties, our inclination is to go, I guess God doesn't love me? Why is it we turn to spiritual things then? It's because there's actually, we've become more aware that the battle is real. And so we have to persevere through the warfare. Jesus said to his own disciple, Peter, 
that when Peter was about to face difficulty and suffering and temptation, he says in Luke 22, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you, you plural, so all the disciples, all the people who follow God, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular you, that your faith may not fail. But notice something about this. Jesus says, look, Satan demands to have you guys. Satan wants to see what you're really made of. He wants to sift you, siphon you like wheat. He wants to see what you're really made of. Do you really follow God or you just follow God when it's comfortable? What happens when he brings discomfort to you? But did you notice what Jesus said? Jesus doesn't say, Peter, I've prayed for you that Satan won't have you. No, he says, Peter, Satan's demanded to have you. It's going to happen. But I pray that your faith will not fail. That you will persevere even when Satan himself is attacking you. Friends, what is our warfare like now? If you're a follower of Christ, what does it mean? What is one of the normal aspects that we have to face in this warfare? So I think it's a lot like the end of World War II, but on a, on a spiritual level maybe. At the end of World War II, after Victory Day, the war is over. The Allied forces have won. The Axis powers are defeated. And yet, because so many of the Allied soldiers were so deep into Europe, having gone to fight many battles there, it was going to take a while for them to get back out. They had to march back through Western Europe to get to places where airplanes and, pla- and boats could take them home. But you know, there were many pockets of Nazi soldiers who refused to surrender, and they would run and hide through the countrysides, and they would snipe and, t- and start little battles with soldiers. So there were actually a number of soldiers who continued to die after the war was over. The war was won but there were still many little battles to face on the way home. This is what it's like in the Christian life. We believe that Jesus came and actually defeated Satan, sin, and death. And yet he hasn't totally wiped those things out because he's waiting for us to join him. He's giving us a chance to join his work. So he's won the war, but you and I have to persevere in doing some warfare. We're going to be attacked. We're going to be challenged. There are going to be difficulties in our lives. And the call that Jesus tells us to make is not to avoid them, but rather to preserve our faith by holding on to the one who won the war that he actually gives us resources to uh, walk through the battles. The hope, the faith that we hold on to is not that we see all the battles are over this instant, but that one day we will. Uh, Peter, the same, the same disciple who Jesus prayed for, wrote this in, in the Bible because he wrote part of the Bible himself uh, by God's direction. He said, For Christ, once, or Christ also saw, suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus also, this is the amazing thing about God. He didn't just leave us in suffering and say, hope you do well in the battle. He came to fight the battle for us, even though he didn't deserve it, so that he could bring us back to God. And Peter said this later in the same letter in 1 Peter chapter 4, we ought not to be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us as though something strange were happening to us, but we rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings because we will also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This suffering, he's saying, is temporary if we are Christ's. This is the pattern right now, the pattern that Jesus showed us. Suffering precedes glory. In this life, there is pain. 
But if our life is hidden in Christ, there is glory to come. So we persevere in the battles we have now because we trust that the war is over ultimately. But in the meantime, we have to wait. And so the other thing we've been seeing in Job is that Job perseveres by waiting. Um, Job often, much of the book of Job, these many 42 chapters, there's many times where Job is speaking with his friends, but there's many other times where Job just turns away. He's frustrated with his friends. He turns away from speaking to them, and he just wants to speak directly to God. So much of the book is Job praying. And here's the thing about it. Job cries out in agonizing pain. He cries out in anger to God. He cries out in terror to God. He cries out despairing to God. He says some really wrong things about God when he talks to God. He doesn't get it all right. But here's the thing that he does. He never stops going to God. He doesn't give up when God doesn't give him what he wants. He persists and he perseveres in prayer because he gets to to a place where he sees that everything else in his life has failed him. There is nothing else that he can hold on to. His family is gone. His business is destroyed. He has nothing. If he doesn't have God, he truly has nothing. But what he comes to see is, what if? What if there really is this hope beyond death, this hope beyond what I see in my life? So he clings to God, and he clings to God by praying. This is what you and I are also called to do, not just the way that we persist in this warfare is by continually entrusting our lives back to God. That is the heart of prayer. You might wonder then, well, in chapter 42 of Job, it says that God says twice, hey, Job's friends, you spoke what is wrong of me, but Job spoke what is right. But we also saw earlier that Job said some things were actually wrong about God. So what is, why would God say that? Why would God say that Job is getting something right and his friends got it wrong? I think it's because what God himself and Jesus clarifies later. Um, he says this in Matthew chapter 12. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, that is, what your heart is full of, your mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure in his heart brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they've spoken. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. One of the things that Jesus is saying is that all the things that come out of our mouths are first rooted in our hearts. It's about our attitude, our orientation towards things. Now, this is why we have to say that Job could actually speak untrue or false things about God, but actually be speaking what's right. Here's what this means. His heart was what is right. Job's friends didn't seek God. Job's friends didn't look to God. Job's friends didn't pray to God. Job's friends said a lot of wrong things about God to Job that really messed with his faith. But they weren't those who were bringing Job to God. Job constantly was going to God. And so what is his heart? What is his orientation? It's to God. His waiting is always towards God. His friends said, here, let me give you a quick fix. Make your life better. Do these simple things. God will reward you. Job didn't trust in that. What Jesus said is that out of the abundance of your heart, out of what your heart is filled with, you speak. And this is why the Christian life is not about just getting our linguistic words. It's not just about linguistics. It's not about getting all our words right. 
It's not about saying perfect things all the time about God because there's a lot of people who walk around and try to say the right things and think, therefore, I'm good with God. But then you're saying, look, if I just say what's right, if I make myself look good to other Christians, if I do church things and I say good church things and I th- sing those songs, I'm good to go. No, that's about you. Your heart is about saying right things, but for your own sake. But what Jesus is talking about is saying things, we say things about how we are oriented. So if you're oriented to God, you might say wrong things, but your desire is to be for and with God. That's a very different kind of thing. It doesn't mean you nail every word right. It doesn't mean you're a master theologian all the time. But yet you are, because master theologians aren't about perfect linguistic correctness. They are about a heart that is oriented to the living God. That is Job. We persevere in waiting, in praying. So Job, we learn, we see from Job, God can handle our anger. He can handle our frustration. He can handle our disappointment. We can speak those things to God, and yet he will still hear them. Because we want to speak them to him and no one else. Look, this is what it's saying. Why are we waiting? Why are we persevering in this? It's because we're not fatalists. We don't look at our circumstance and say, well, whatever happens, happens. I don't understand how this strange world is governed anyway, so God, do what you're going to do. We're not fatalists. We're not stoics. We're also not controlling. We don't, we don't look at our circumstances and demand, God, these things must become what I want when I want them, or else you are terrible at governing the world. But isn't that often how we pray? But what we see from Job is that Job is saying this. You can speak to your father this way. God, I'm in pain. I'm doubting. I'm struggling. What are you doing? Where are you? God, you are my maker. You are my friend. You designed this whole world. But, but where are you in this time and in this circumstance? You are a personal God, but I don't feel your personal presence. God, I don't understand my circumstances. If only I could speak to you. If only you would hear me again. These are just things Job said. How long, O Lord, will things go on like this? No matter how long these pains, these trials, these difficulties, these injustices, these sorrows last, my longing is that I might find you. My longing is that I might see you. My longing is that I might know you and trust you and hear from you again no matter the outcome of my immediate circumstance. Persevering in prayers like this holds together, hoping and waiting. This is how we fight. But the greater thing behind perseverance, the thing that's going to allow us to keep persevering, is if we have a tremendous vision of God's compassion for us. This is the real thing that keeps us going because it's not just grin and bear it. It's not just get gritty and plow your way through it. It's to find out that we've been a part of a bigger story all along. And so the Apostle James reminded us that it's not just Job's perseverance that we see in the book of Job, but we see God's purposes, and his purpose is to show that he's full of compassion and mercy. Job echoes this in uh, chapter 42, verse 2. We read it earlier. Job says, I know that you can do all things, Lord, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job has come to learn something of God's purposes. And what is it about his purposes that are compassionate? 
It may seem odd to think of seeing God's compassion throughout Job because there's long stretches where we don't see God speaking at all. We just see Job and his friends debating what it means to walk with God when you're in a difficult place. Is God really compassionate? Why did he take so long to answer? Why did he take so long to show up to Job? But what this word compassion means, it's a very powerful word in the Bible. Uh, The word compassion means a very high degree of affection, a very high degree of love and compassion. That's what compassion is, a very high degree of affection. So when James says that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, he is calling to mind a very common description of God throughout the entire Bible. This isn't something new. This isn't something just Job experiences. This is something the Bible says about God over and over. Here's a repeated refrain from Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious or compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, persevering love. It's not just us who is called to persevere, but it is coming to see that God has persevered for us and with us even when we didn't. The psalm is just getting this from the story of Exodus where Moses meets God and the Israelites meet God after he saves them from 430 years of oppressive slavery. This is the kind of God that he is. He brings them out of slavery. And when he does, he reveals himself to them. And this is what Moses sees. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Same phrase. And faithfulness. And this is who God is. This is his self-revelation. Here's what Psalm 103 describes God as. Here's the kind of things that God does because of the kind of character that God has. His compassion works this way. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses when he saved the people from slavery and his actions to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever, because he will not deal with us according to our sins, nor will he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as heaven is above earth, so great is his steadfast love or compassion towards those who fear him, those who have given their lives to him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And if you've ever tried to go east until you hit west, you know you're just going to keep going. You never do. You're always going east. And so as a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows what our life is like here and now. He remembers that we are dust. It's, we are fragile. So this theme of the entire Bible from Job to Moses to James describes the same consistent character of God who deeply cares for his people, who has compassion, who hates sin and injustice and evil and will set it right. He will overcome oppression. What we've seen throughout Job is that Job's friends and sometimes us end up aligning ourselves more with Satan's purposes than with God's. Because Satan's purpose is that he, he wants to get us to judge God based on our circumstances. I have bad circumstances, therefore God isn't good or God must not be loving. But what this is showing us, what the scriptures are telling us is a different story that all along it's God's purposes to show us that even in the worst of circumstances, he remains compassionate. 
even beyond what we can understand or what we see every moment. It's God's purposes that we might persevere under this warfare and in this waiting so that, as we're going to see, He can restore us, so that He can set life right again. So, friends, what we're going to see, a couple uh, points about this to Job 42 how is God compassionate to us? We see Job experiences three things. He's humbled, he's accepted, and he's restored. He's humbled, he's accepted, and he's restored because of God's great compassion for him. So you may wonder, well, how is this working? Because I read chapter 42, verse 6, and after Job has had this long conversation with God, he's seen the glory of God. He's seen God's holiness. He says in, in chapter 42, verse 3, I I spoke things I didn't understand, things too great for me. What Job says is, turns out I didn't know what I was talking about a lot of the time. Even when I was, my heart was towards God, but I didn't really know what I was talking about. And so Job says in verse 6, Therefore, now that I've seen you, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And What's odd about the word repent here is that it's actually also the word comforted, which occurs numerous times throughout Job. And so Job has been looking for comfort all along. And Job is sitting in dust and ashes because he's been sitting on a trash heap, grieving. This is where he went to weep. And, and as if he's like metaphorically saying, my life is like garbage now. I am in dust and ashes. I have nothing left. But the place of weeping becomes the place of comforting. When, when God shows up, He often shows up. There can be substantial healing now in our lives. God actually shows up to us in the place of pain. And that's what Job is saying. God has showed up there. But for you and I, maybe we hear this, this whole, I despise myself as 21st century people. We might go, man, what happened? Apparently all this tragic stuff has happened and Job has terrible self-esteem now. I despise myself, he says. But let's be clear that Job is not despising himself. He's not comparing himself to other people and saying, gosh, I'm a terrible person. I'm awful. My life sucks. Job is saying, I have seen God. And comparatively, oh man, I am made low. And do you know that you know you've come to know God is when you've started to see yourself in the world in a different way? And mainly, not that you're less than other people, but not that you're more than other people, but really you've come to see how great God is. And that brings you to a place of being low. Look how great God is. I have seen God and realized I was speaking about stuff I don't really understand. I don't know how to govern the universe. I don't know how to fix all the problems of the world. I'm not so great that I can make myself right with God again. We come to this place of humility, this place where Our self-esteem has gained a proper regard, not for other people per se, but before God himself. When Job is talking about this incredible encounter with the living God, he suddenly sees himself in comparison to God. He sees his own place in the universe, and he realizes that even though he was the greatest man on the earth, there is nobody greater than this God that he knows and worships. And this is what we see Uh, is that God is compassionate enough to humble us. If we've ever been in circumstances that made us realize our smallness, is it possible that God has actually been calling you to see then His greatness? And that that is a loving thing because the only other option is to persist in arrogance and pride. It is to persist in a way of life that says, God's kind of great, but I'm 
I got this. Job has seen that he doesn't. And what he's been longing for is this God of compassion who when Job is made low, God might just raise him up again. And that leads us to this. Job comes to see that God's compassionate enough to humble him, but he's also compassionate enough to accept him. And not only him, but all of his friends who've done some pretty terrible things throughout the story. In uh, chapter 7 to 9, we saw this in chapter 42, verse 7 to 9. After the Lord spoke these words to Job, God comes to Eliphaz and to Bildad and to Zophar and says, I am angry with you because you have done terrible things with Job. But, but do this, and this is interesting, Job begins and ends his story with sacrifice. Job was sacrificing for his children in chapter 1. He was saying, I, hope my, I want my children to be right with God. Now he has an opportunity to make his friends right with God. Job is this kind of person. He has maintained his character throughout. And God invites Job to make his friends, uh, bring his friends into a better place, that they could be accepted like Job is. And so he says, take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, offer up a burnt offering. Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. I will not, this is what he says, really important, I will not deal with you according to your folly. And that is a good day if God doesn't deal with us according to the foolish stuff that we've done. If he won't deal with us according to our sin, if he won't deal with us because he's made a way so that we can be right with him and no longer in the wrong, that is a, a good and important day. That's the kind of day that Job's friends are having because God invites Job to mediate for them, to advocate for them, to make their lives right with God again. Four times in this short two ver three verses, we see that God calls Job my servant Job, which again, we might think, well, that's lowly. But Jesus is called the servant of God. Being a servant of God is a high position. It's a place that Moses and David, who is a king, all these people held this place, which meant they had an honored place with God, and God was working through them to do his work. Ultimately, all those people pointed to Jesus, who is the ultimate advocate and here's the thing, that when God says, hey, Job is right with me, and you'll be made right with me through Job, it's the same thing that we've received through Jesus. Job is pointing to the greater making right with God that happens when Jesus comes. See, here's the thing about having an advocate. This is, this is something about the way God is saying the world works, is that you can't just go directly to God. You can't just come and make yourself right with Him. You can't just pray the right prayers or say the right things, even if your heart's oriented to Him. He has to make us right with Him. And how does he do it? He gives us an advocate. Here's how that would work in a court of law. If your lawyer wins the case, you've won, right? If your lawyer wins for you, you've also won. If your country and your army wins the battle, even if you're not in the army, you've won. Your country has received the benefits of that. If someone came and attacked you, but you won the war, you still are okay because your army advocated for you. They fought on your behalf. It's the same thing that happens with Jesus. And what the good news of the gospel is this, that if Jesus has defeated Satan, if Jesus has won the war against sin, if Jesus has destroyed all that stood against us and he took our place to do it, well, then he was our advocate. And so when he won, we won. And what he has, he gives to us so that if he has righteousness, if he has glory, if he has all the restoration of the world at his fingertips, then so do you and I. This is what the story of Job is pointing to. The technical term for it is justification. 
we have been made right with God. Job is pointing forward to Jesus who does that work on our behalf. And here's how you know. This is what mercy, it said that God is full of compassion and mercy. Here's what mercy is. God not dealing with you according to what you deserve. Not dealing with you according to your folly. When you've made some of the worst mistakes of your life, he's saying, that will not be counted against you. When you're in Christ, it is no longer there. It is wiped clean. That is not yours to hold on to or to struggle with any longer, friends. That's the normal life of a Christian. That our life is actually found in somebody else, in Jesus himself. And we know that we've received mercy. We know that we've received this I will not deal with you according to your folly. We know we've received it because mercy is always followed up with grace. And grace, the grace of God is always this tangible thing. God gave us a mediator. God gave us a person. He didn't just give us a nice promise, although he did give us promises. He didn't just give us a nice spiritual feeling that I think, I hope, I hope I'm right with God. He gave us himself. So that when he died on the cross, it became a tangible way. And when he arose from the grave, an empty tomb is a tangible way to show us, you have an advocate. He has done the things that we could never do. And this leads us to something else that we could never do. God's compassion leads us to restoration. We are restored by God's compassion. That's the rest of the chapter. Verses 10 to 17 was Job getting more than what he had in the first place. And he was already, before he lost everything, he had been the wealthiest and most honored man in his part of the world. But now we see that Job has double the children. He has double the livestock, which is his business, his wealth. And it says that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. And the important place to see is that this doesn't happen uh, before. God doesn't just give him nice things and then Job says, Oh, thank you, now I'll be humble. Job is humble and then he received these things because his heart was actually true towards God. He wasn't even asking God for all this stuff. But this is the kind of person that God is. Throughout the Bible, we see something else that Job uh, foreshadows and points to. All throughout the prophets, the prophets say things like, Speak tenderly to God's people. Cry out that her warfare is ended. If we're persevering in warfare, there's coming a day where we're going to hear the war is over. God has won. Your iniquity, your sin is pardoned. You will receive from the Lord's hand double, even for all your sins. No matter how much you've sinned, you're going to receive double. Not because you should keep sinning, but because God's that gracious. That's how he wants to restore us. Oftentimes we've seen in Isaiah or in the prophet Zechariah, there's this whole theme of double portion. You will receive a double portion. All the things that have happened to you that have gone wrong, that have been bad, that you have made mistakes in, God is so gracious and compassionate, he will give you double all the things that you might feel you've lost, and then more. This is the kind of God that he is. Sometimes that actually starts happening now. In this life, we can actually start to receive substantial healing. But what Job is pointing to is the end of our story as well, when Jesus returns and he sets everything right. Because that's what he's going to come and do. That's the promise. That's the thing that we put our faith and hope in, is God himself will come back to us. And we are waiting for him to do it. And when he does, he will restore all things. Do you see what happens with Job? Here's, here's, like, here's my tiny example. This is, a, this is just a tiny little one, but you remember the first time you ever went to Five Guys? 
right? You order a burger and you have fries and then you look in the bag and there's like double the amount of fries as they're supposed to be in the cup. You're like, it's overflowing. Every time I go to Five Guys, I think, I actually try to reflect, this is God's grace to us. It's a picture. It's a little tiny little picture of what is. All the little good things you receive now are just tiny little pictures of the great things that are going to come in the restoration, right? The cup will overflow for sure. That's the promise to us. Do you see what happens to Job? Job lost everything, so he was in poverty. But Job's poverty becomes prosperity. Job's uh, broken body becomes beautiful, restored again. He lives to 140 more years. Job's isolation of feeling so lonely in his suffering, he is restored to full, loving community, and he helps restore his friends. Job's friends go from being in the wrong to being set in, in the right. Job's despair gives way to celebration and feasting. All his family that had rejected him comes back and they feast together. Job's near-death experience is transformed into a long life. And for us, Jesus came and said, I came to give you eternal life. That starts now. It's not future life. It's life that starts now. The future has invaded the present. This is our reality now. This is our normal if you are God's, if you are walking with him. Job, the end of Job, anticipates the return of Jesus and restoration for us. It anticipates the full glory of God. And here's the thing that you have to see, that the normal Christian life is warfare. It is waiting, but it is also being humbled under the mighty love of God, the compassion that is given to us in Jesus, and the promise that he will set all things right. We hold on to that even if we don't see it every moment now, because perseverance requires hoping and requires faith. And let's be clear about what happens to Job. Job doesn't get some weird, nice spiritual blessings. He doesn't get angels with harps and clouds. Job's restoration is rock-solid real. He could touch everything that God restored. Sheep, cattle, he could hug his daughters, he could shake his son's hands, for many generations, what he received is not some abstract spiritual reality, but rather the spiritual reality that stands behind everything brought him to restoration. Friends, that is the promise for you and I. Jesus promises us a new heavens and a new earth. New earth, not, not a disconnected stuff, not out there spirituality, heaven in the clouds. He's talking about new realities that we already can begin to understand. Friends, do you see what has happened? The blessings God pours out on believers at the end will be every bit as real as the blessings that Job received. So that means all the relationships that you've longed for will only be that much better in heaven. The broken family that you have, even the best family now is but a glimmer of what family will be in heaven. The most beautiful woman now is, will be dull compared to the glory she will have in heaven. We look forward to real prosperity that makes the Forbes list of billionaires look like they're poor. We're talking about tangible restoration and blessing. And this is what we look forward to. This celebration that Job has, this feast he has with his family, Jesus told us that we will have a feast with him and we will feast with him forever. And which makes the best party on earth right now look like a night of boredom. Is that your vision? Is that your expectation of the normal Christian life? Because, oh, friends, this is what he came to give us. 
Let's pray, and we're going to take communion together. Lord, we thank you that you've come uh, to give us this new reality, this restored reality, that you haven't rejected us and left us. You haven't you won't treat us according to our folly, but when we hold fast to you, Jesus, we cry out and say, what other hope do we have? You alone hold the source of life. You alone hold our restoration. There is, there is no friendship. There is no family. There are no right words we could say. There is no logic. There is no circumstance we see now that will set things right. So we instead cling to you, Lord, despite what we see in our circumstances now. Lord, walk with us as we seek to persevere with you. Thank you that you have won the war and that you are with us even in the battles now. We long for you alone, that we might be humbled before you. We long for you to rejoice that you have accepted us, not according to our folly, but instead according to Christ. And we rejoice in you now as we take communion, Lord. Remind us too, even through communion, that these are little but real rock-solid things, bread and wine that remind us your body was actually broken, your blood was actually poured out for us so that we could be made right, and so we remember you. We remember and we reflect that this little tiny piece of bread and wine is yet a rock-solid reality that points to the much, much, much greater reality that in Christ we will be restored and we will have everything because we have you right now. So we pray this in your name. We pray that you would be glorified in and through us as we persevere and as we wait. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, take a moment to reflect on this rock-solid reality. This bread and this wine is pointing to another truer, greater thing and reminds us of the restoration to come. If you don't know Jesus, cry out to him. Don't worry about taking communion. But if you do, let this be a tiny piece, a tiny foretaste of the feast that is coming for those who know him. And then we'll sing again.